if you if you had come back uh, if you'd come around here in 1957 before the building was here and I guess it was just a whole lot of empty land at that point you probably on a on a on a afternoon after a school day was over you'd probably seen a few kids and some other folks uh, wielding some shovels digging out some ground perhaps uh, about the size of most of this building right here this sanctuary uh, it had been the Clark Clark kids and um, so next time next time I told them next time we need some digging I know who to call uh, we've got just the folks for the job um, Garner Clark Sr. was the founding pastor of this church and so he brought his kids up here and, and y'all did all kinds of stuff and, and I'm sure I'm sure you could just spend hours just telling us all the stuff y'all had to do <laughs> and I'm sure it was all just a joy and, and just so exciting to be able to dig those ditches and, and, and the, the septic tank hole and all that all that work that y'all did, um, doing, doing a lot of the stuff that's necessary to begin a church. Uh, I know y'all spent times with mama wishing daddy was home and, and trying to take care of y'all, and, and y'all spent countless hours doing all sorts of things, uh, putting blood, sweat, and tears uh, into the founding of this body. And, and so it's, it's a joy to have y'all here this morning. Uh, Garner Clark has pastored for much longer than I've been alive. Not too much longer. I mean, only a few years. Uh, but he has pastored in Montgomery, I think in Kentucky, right? Had a church in Kentucky. And most uh, recently at Otagaville Baptist for, for almost as long as I've been alive. So, so there you go. Not quite that long. But um, the impact that he's had locally uh, on on pastors and, and developing young men for ministry, on, on leading churches, on being parts of associations and doing all the things that he's done uh, speaks for itself. So I'll, I'll let that hang there. Brother Garner, we are blessed and honored to have you come and preach this morning. So if you'll make your way on up here, um, we, we look forward to what God has laid on your heart. We're going to pray and then I'm going to hand it over to you. And so let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship your name, to give you the praise that you deserve, to hear, uh, uh, hear spoken for uh, as they have sung this morning, leading in worship some, uh, just, just expressing their hearts to you. Father, we pray now as we turn to your word that it would be more than just words on a page, that it would be more than just something that someone comes up here and talks about. We pray that you would change our lives. We say every Sunday morning that, that this is your word and if we'll let it, it will change us. And it's true. Your word will change us, not because there's anything special about the words, but because they come from you. So Father, in this time, we pray that your word would do the work in our hearts that you have sent it for it to do. We pray that Garner would preach faithfully and boldly your message, that we would hear it and obey it. Do what it says. Put it into practice. Lord, let this word not just be something for us to hear and forget. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other. Don't let it just reverberate around the walls and not make an impact. God, drive it down deep into our hearts. We may hear you. Thank you for this man, for his ministry, for everything that he's done. Thank you for his faithfulness to serve you through all these years. 
Lord, we pray this morning that you would be with them and give him the words to speak, that we may follow you better, know you more intimately, be like you in the way we live. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Mike. You want to pause for just a minute and do a little experiment. So you just bear with me just a moment. I should have gotten one of these big guys up here to help me. I think I moved two chairs by myself. Now, can everybody on that side over there see the two chairs? Okay. You ever had Brother Michael preach on chairs? <laughs> There's a verse somewhere in the Bible about chairs. I'm sure we can find it. But I'm glad to be here. My wife's here. Some of our relatives are here. And uh, family, brother and sister are here. And we're glad to come back to Crestview. So just a little bit of a way of introduction. Uh, brother Michael's given me a great introduction, so I appreciate that. But there's a couple of people here that can relate a little bit to what I'm about to say. And my older brother Roger, me, and maybe even Lydia, I'm not sure how old she was. But when y'all were singing those first few songs a while ago, it took me back, Roger, to Madalou Woodall's house over in Friendship where our daddy was pastor at the Baptist church. Now, you know, Baptists don't smoke, drink, dance, or chew, or go with girls that do. <laughs> that was our motto at the Baptist church. But I don't know who was responsible for it, but we'd sneak off to Maddie Lou Woodall's house, which was on the other side of the old Baptist church. It was an old wooden house, wooden floors, and so forth. And she had a piano. Now, I swear to this day, pardon me, swearing, but to this day, I promise you, she must have been Jerry Lee Lewis's mother because she could play the boogie-woogie piano like we'd never heard. And she would beat on that piano, and she was just a-going, and me and Roger and Lionel Lee, and maybe Lydia, if you can't, you, Lydia was too young. She was, she was still in diapers, so okay. She was too little. So the three of us oldest ones, we'd go up there. Soon as she got on that piano, I started doing what I almost did sitting there a minute ago when y'all had that bass going and y'all were just moving around. We used to do the buck dance. Anybody old enough to remember what a buck dance is? I don't know a good definition of it, but it looks like you've just fallen in an ant bed and you got up and you're trying to get them all off of you and you're doing this and you're rolling in the floor. I was rolling over. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just trying to get that rhythm of that beat that Madeline Woodall was playing on that, like Jerry Lee Lewis going, and she had that pedal going like this, and and I was I was doing flips, Jim. I'd run over the floor and I'd do a flip, a hand flip. Then I'd get on the floor and I was swimming. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. That was dancing to me. I hope my wife had to hold me a minute ago. She said, don't stand up and start doing the buck dance here in the church. That's what I was dealing with a minute ago. My legs were going and my arms were going just like I was when I was, uh, I was probably, what, Roger seven? I was six years old. Roger said I was six years old. <laughs> Y'all got any six-year-old children? 
I can teach them the buck dance probably in about two minutes if you want me to. But that's what I was thinking. Man, that, that, that rhythm and that gospel music just got my legs and my joints going and made me feel like I'm not as old as I am. So thank you all for, for, that, for that great music. I put these two chairs up here uh, this morning, and I'm not sure when he's going to flash our scriptures up here, but uh, we'll get, we get to it in just a minute, Michael, okay? First of all, I want to tell you why I've got it here. It's one of the best illustrations I've ever seen about commitment and sacrifice, calling for Christ. There was a man many years ago, he was born and raised in, some of you uh, may catch on, but I'm not going to use the name just yet. Uh, he was born and raised in Modena, Italy as a young man, born in 1935. And as he was growing up as a child, his father was a world-renowned psychiatrist. His mother was a medical doctor. And both of them expected great things from their children. But the father also loved to sing. Now, they were active in a local Catholic church. Very devout Catholics, we're told. And this young man would hear his father sing, and he thought, that's what I want to do. I love to hear my father sing. And it was more, of course, of Italian arias and uh, things like that he was singing. But the little boy growing up idolized his father, and he wanted to do that. Well, as he grew on up and he got into high school, he started thinking more and more, a little more seriously about what his life was going to be. He got into high school, getting ready to go to college. And so he would talk to his parents about it, and they said, well, whatever you feel like you want to do. They were giving him a chance to choose his vocation, make a commitment. So as he got into, after finished high school, he's ready to go to college. He started liking athletics. His father wanted him to be a goalkeeper for a soccer team there in town. Wanted him to be in, in physical education. He goes all the way through college, gets his education degree, actually teaches elementary school for a while. And finally, he realizes this is not what I feel fulfilled doing. There's something missing. And he went to his father, and with the wisdom that his father had, he asked his father, how can I choose the direction for my life? How do I really just commit myself to the one thing that I can do? His father said, have you ever tried to sit in two chairs. He said, if you try to sit in two chairs at the same time, you're going to fall in between. So with his father's wisdom, said, choose one chair. Choose one chair in your life. Sit in it. Give your full weight to it. All of your ambitions. And his father added this, all that God has given you, gifted you, put in that chair and use it for God's glory. With that, while he was teaching school, he started professional training, singing. He loved to hear the old tenors, Mario Lanza and some of the others back then in the 40s and the 50s. He said, that's what I want to do. He was told you'll have to do it for seven or eight or ten years just to train your vocal cords, just to train your, your voice. So he started teaching school, 
and, and, and studying on the side. It took him almost 20 years of his life focusing on that one thing. And he finally made it to the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. I'm going to play him in just a moment. I want you to see how God used him for his glory. Oh, by the way, his testimony, and you can find it, a Christian testimony in his relationship with the Lord. He said, till the day he died, God gave me my voice. I use it to honor and glorify him. And when I sing, I feel his pleasure. Doesn't that give you chill moments just to think of that? Something ran down your spine to know you're doing what God has said for you to do. Use the gift, but honor me because I gave it to you. Honor him, glorify him. I have just a couple of scriptures that I wanted to use this morning to share with you. Brother Michael's going to get them up here. There it is. In Nehemiah chapter 4. Now, I believe many of you have been through the study of Nehemiah here at this church and probably others. You're familiar with the whole setting of Nehemiah. Nehemiah has left a palatial palace in the capital city of Susa where they were exiled to. He has come back almost a thousand miles back to Jerusalem. And there the walls have been torn down, as you know, because of so many invasions, conquering armies have torn, just torn the city to pieces. Uh, the temple had been torn down, but it had been rebuilt, but there's no wall around the city. And he feels like God has told him, told him, come back and rebuild those walls for protection around the city of Jerusalem so they can be my people, my nation again. So God has given him that direction. And he prayed and he prayed. You'll see through chapter 3, he's prayed over and over. And he said, this is what, listen to what he said. God has put this in my heart. He said it over and over again. God has put this in my heart. I know this will bring him pleasure. I know I must sit in one chair and give my life to it. I've heard Bible scholars, brother, brother Michael of New Orleans Seminary, people of the scholars, they've said at that time where he, he was and came back to Jerusalem, where he had been, he was in the king's palace. He was like head of the kitchen, head of all the servants in the palace. He had a cushiony job and probably well paid with benefits and, and uh, uh, state farm insurance. I mean, he had everything going for him back there in that city working with the king. He had no reason to leave, but God broke his heart and said, go to Jerusalem. I need somebody to lead those people to rebuild the walls. And he starts there in chapter 3. He starts naming people and some of the priests, some of the leaders, and they start trying to gather people. And there's, there's all kind of opposition. And people say, well, you can't do it. We're going to attack you. Some of the uh, warlords from other countries are going to come. We're going to tear down the walls more. We're going to kill you if you try to rebuild the wall. We don't want the wall built. We don't want Jerusalem to be rebuilt. You need to stop. Well, he wouldn't stop. And he kept telling the people, we've got to do that. God has said us. This is our one chair. God wants us to do this. Finally, in chapter 4, and verse 6, he says, So we rebuilt the wall till all of its reach, height reached half. While the people worked with all their heart. I like another version that says a little bit more literally, 
for the people had a heart to work. Up to that point, their hearts had not been moved. This was Nehemiah's dream. It wasn't theirs. They calculated how hard it was going to be, what it was going to cost them. And they said, we're not going to do it. But now in verse 6 of chapter 4, they said they had a heart to do it. We realize this is God's plan. This is what God has us here for. But this moment in time, this is what He wants us to do. And so they start building. And the Bible says there, and this that one verse, they got to halfway up already. Now in case some of you have not do not remember your Old Testament history, you can look it up quick by... Uh, I see some folks on their phone now looking it up while I'm talking up here. <laughs> we, had, we had that at a toggle in other churches. I'll say something, people pick up their phone, they're checking it out. They're looking on Google and uh, whatever those other... Uh, Yahoo and Flip Flip and Poot Poot and all that. They're trying to, trying to find it up there somewhere. How far around Jerusalem did those walls extend? How far was it? Two and a half miles. You ever run a mile? You ever run two miles? Two and a half, three miles? You know how long, how far two and a half miles is? The walls were 40 feet high, eight feet thick. They had something like 40 different gates and doors. All of that had to be repaired. It had to be restored. It had to be rebuilt. This is what they're facing. And by chapter 4, verse 6, Nehemiah says they had a heart to work. They worked and they built it up to halfway. Now we know that they're going to go on and finish it. And some of you remember, I remember the, the number in 52 days, the Bible says. They built it in 52 days. Why? They sat in one chair. They devoted themselves to that one thing. Did they have times of discouragement? Did they have times of defeatism? Yes. People were attacking them the whole way. They even had to step guard, stand guards out at night to protect them because uh, marauders and raiders would be coming in trying to stop them, the rebuilding of the wall. So they worked like 24 hours a day rebuilding those walls, doing what God had put in their heart. Some of you may have heard the story. The devil had a yard sale. Did you ever know that the devil had a yard sale? No, he really might have called it garage sale. You know, estate sale. But there's a story that says the devil had a yard sale. Now, my wife loves yard sales. I've said before, I could be riding down Highway 31. And she said, there's a yard sale. Turn there. We're, you almost wrecked the car. People are backing up behind us. We've got to get to a yard sale. And we get over there and it looks just like the junk we already got at the house. And we start paying $3 for a dollar. Uh, anyway, the devil had a yard sale. People came from miles around. And people are going out there and there are tables, there are things set up out there. And these are the things that he's ready to sell. Get rid of. He's out of business. He's going, the devil. Brother, the devil was going out of business. Believe that? He was going out of business. Over here on this table is pride. He uses pride. He said, I've used it for eons of time. It works. But I'm getting rid of it. I'm not going to use it. On the next table, there was jealousy. He said, I've used jealousy to try to ruin God's people. Try to bring them down. Get them to get lazy. Jealous of other people. But I'm throwing that away. Pride. Jealousy. Another table over there, he had gossip. 
better known as Facebook, pardon me. <laughs> he had gossip. I've used gossip, he said. It's been one of the best tools I have. Whisper about something, it'll spread quicker than you know. He said, I'm getting rid of gossip. Way over on by itself on the table, there was something with a cloth over it. Somebody said, what about that over there? He said, oh no, I'm keeping that. I'm keeping that one. You can have anything else out here. I'm getting out of business, but I'm keeping the one. They reached over and took the, took the cloth off of it. They said, what is that? He said, that's my prized possession. It's called discouragement. The devil said, I found in thousands of years, if I can get people's, God's people discouraged and lose heart and give up and quit and lose focus off of God's chair, off of God's plan, I've got them. Why? Because they're too discouraged to even try anymore. That's what Nehemiah and his people were facing. And they were willing to stay the course, stay focused like a laser on what God had given them to do. Now, I'm like Joshua. And who was the other one? Uh, Elijah. Joshua told the people, said, you need to choose this day whom you're going to serve. <laughs> I can just hear my daddy said, uh, you need to choose something now. Make up your mind. Joshua say, choose whom you're going to serve. You're going to serve the gods back there? Or you're going to serve the Lord God? Make up your mind. I'm tired of fooling with you. I'm tired of dealing with you. Choose who you're going to serve. He was saying, are you going to focus on what God's plan is for your life? And Elijah said the same thing. He said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. He said, you can go do what you want to. We're going to serve the Lord. Amen. There was a man in the New Testament. You might have heard of him, Paul. <laughs> I think we've all heard of Paul. Paul the Apostle in writing the, to the church at Philippi. In chapter 3 and verses 12 through verse 14, look what Paul says about his life. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold, but this one thing I do. One chair. Not trying to sit in two. One chair. This one thing I do. Forget what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He said, that's the one thing I do. You and I would have never heard of Paul the Apostle if Paul could not be committed just like that. That one thing I do. I press toward the goal for the prize that God has set for me. And we know that he gave his life. Paul did. Paul gave his life because his eyes were fixed on what God had called him to do. When I was growing up in high school, in Prattville, Tonga County High School, I wanted somehow to figure out how I could play in the band on a Friday night in a football game and go quickly change and play football at the same time. Robert Moses, I never figured out how to do that. My band director, Mr. Fred Mann, didn't want me to do it anyway. And some of the guys in the in the band had left, some of the bigger guys, and they started playing football. They left the band, started doing it. 
And he didn't like that. So I just gave up that idea. Besides, I wasn't that physically fit and strong. I was like 150 pounds and six foot four or something like that. I don't know, I've shrunk a little bit. I just didn't have that football physicality, you know. But I could play the three valves on a trumpet so I, and blow into it. So I played the trumpet in the band. I knew a little bit about track and track and field. Back in the, in, in the 60s, we admired those that would be like in the Olympics. We heard about, and, and I'm telling myself, I'm telling about my personal testimony. I heard about a man who back in the 1950s, and I want to say it was 1954, his name was Roger Bannister. Roger Bannister was a miler. He was actually a medical student going to medical school, later finished medical school, became a, a neurosurgeon. But he loved to run, one of the best in the world. Roger Bannister was running one day in a contest, in a, in a track meet, and he broke the four-minute mile. First time anyone had ever run the mile in less than four minutes. Three minutes, 59.4 seconds. By six-tenths of a second, he broke the four-minute mile. The world went crazy. Somebody finally broke the four-minute mile. The only person in the world. Across the, the world, there was another man by the name of John Landy, L-A-N-D-Y. He thought he was the best in the world, even though he'd never broken the four-minute mile. He got out one day in a track meet in Australia, and he broke the four-minute mile, too, by just a few tenths of a point a second. So promoters get together, and they said, hey, we can make a lot of money. How about you and you, Bannister and Landy, meet in Vancouver, Canada, and we're going to have the mile of the century, the race of the century. And they promoted it. Tens of thousands of people paid to come to the stadium to watch just these two, one race, just these two, to see who was the fastest in the world. They took off, and they started running around the track. The crowd is cheering. Landy had his people. Bannister had his, had his fans. And they're just yelling their heads off. It's like a 50,000-seat like a stadium in Vancouver. And they were running around the track. They did three laps. We know four laps is supposed to be a mile. They did three laps, and Landy was head of Bannister. He was ahead by, according to everything we'll read, about 15 feet. Now, if you're running where a tenth of a second makes a difference, 15 feet is a lot. But Landy was ahead of Bannister to beat the record holder. And as they ran around that last curve, if you've ever seen track or you run in track, as you're coming around that last curve to head home, that's the only chance you've got to get just a little bit of an angle to see where your opponent is. And as Landy came around in the lead, as he turned, he didn't see Bannister. Bannister in that split second passed him. Because if you've ever run, you know you don't have time to be looking behind you. But he did. And that's all Bannister needed, that split second to come around him and go ahead of him. And Bannister won the race. To this day, that was 1954. To this day, there is a bronze statue of the two men 
in Vancouver, Canada, in the park where the race took place. Here's what it shows. It shows Bannister ahead of Landy. And Landy is depicted in this statue as turning. He's remembered as the one who looked behind and took his eyes off of the prize. Bannister won because Landy turned around and looked behind him. Landy was quoted as saying, had a little bit of humor about it. He said, well, all my life I'd heard about Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt because she turned around and looked behind. He said, I looked behind and I was turned into a bronze statue <laughs> for all the world to see. Paul said, I'm not looking behind. I can't serve the generation behind me. You can't either. They're gone. You can't serve the generation perhaps even right ahead of us. Paul says, I'm fixed on this generation. Paul is preaching to one of the churches in Acts chapter 13. And Paul says this. He said, remember King David? And Paul quotes the Old Testament. He said, King David served God in his own generation, then God took him. What a testimony. King David focused on his generation, his people, and gave it his all. He sat in that one chair, one devotion, one heart, one vision, one dream, and God took him home. What a testimony that would be for any of us. I was also fascinated to read some time ago about a man that was by the name of, now I'm going to get it right, some of you science teachers, Igor Sikorsky. Any of you do any aircrafts or anything? Military? Sikorsky? You know what Sikorsky's remembered for? He grew up in Russia. As a young boy, he wanted to be an engineer. He wanted to build things. He was in a conversation as just a teenager one time, and they were talking about over in America, there's two crazy guys named Wright Brothers. They're trying to make airplanes. People are going to fly in airplanes. He said, it must be crazy. He told his family about it. They said, man was never meant to fly. Don't even involve yourself in it. Forget it. Man was never meant to fly. As a teenage boy, that kind of ticked you off a little bit. He said, I think I can do that. Igor Sikorsky started looking at it. He not only, like the Wright brothers, started building airplanes, became famous for it. But he said, you know, I just believe that we can have rotary propellers on top of like an airplane or a what? Helicopter. And it can lift off. People said, you're crazy. You can't do it. He devoted himself to that one dream. Building that because God had put it in his heart and in his mind. He said, that's what I want to do. And he worked on it all the way through the 1920s, the 1930s, and I believe it was 1942. Finally, he perfected it. They built the first practical helicopter that lifted off the ground, lifted, I think, like 500 pounds. The government gave him a contract to start building them in a factory. Now, here's where I'm headed to. He had a dream. He had a heart to do that. He had a, a vision of what God, he felt God wanted him to do. And he had a factory. And they started having an assembly line of trying to make some, 
some helicopters, primitive for that age, yes, but helicopters that would work and get them sell them to the government. Outside this factory is what I want you to hear. He had a big sign for all of the employees. Okay, some of them had ideas about how weird it is trying to make man fly. He had a big sign there. Here's what the sign said. According to science and according to all aerodynamic theories, the bumblebee cannot fly. It's too small. The wings are too short. And a bumblebee cannot fly, according to science. But here's what he added. He had a sense of humor. He said he had a hand up there uh, on this sign. He had a hand like, like this. He said, shh. But nobody's told the bumblebee that. So the bumblebee flies against all theories. That's what God wanted Nehemiah to see. The people of his day. David saw that. Paul saw that. Paul even commits himself. This one thing I will do. Sit in one chair. I hope that as you look at God's Word and you study God's Word, you'll realize that God has given each of us, let's call it a gift. New Testament talks about 26 or 27 different gifts, uh, 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 special talents and passions that every church should have. And as we look at those, whether you want to call it a gift or just a passion or something that God wants me to do, years ago, uh, Brother Michael, I used to just knock on doors and say, hey, I'm Garner Clark. I'm pastor of Millville Baptist Church here in Kentucky. And I want to talk to you about the Lord. What do they always say? I already go to church. Uh, we'll go down to Podunk Holler. Oh, okay. All right, I go on to somebody else. No, I don't do that anymore. Don't get much results. In the last few years, I go and knock on somebody's door and I'm visiting. Here's what I ask them. Let's get, let's get down to the... Let's get to the nitty-gritty okay this is what i ask when they say we go to church at such and such i'll say what church do you go to every sunday and what is your ministry there if they try to answer you know what they're going to say oh i didn't know i was supposed to have one do you go every sunday no we went we went last july in other words you're just going and sitting in a pew and there's some great gospel music and then there's some fellowship and some prayers and you go home what did you do? What is your one chair? What does God want you to do? Get involved in that and serve the Lord. Not two chairs. You're going to fall in between them. You can't have two, two number one loyalties. Choose one or the other. In the 1960s, my brothers and sisters may remember, I was trying to get all of my college credits in. And I enrolled in Huntington College. Well, when you enrolled in Huntington back then, you had to have a major of some kind so they could plan out your program. And I said, well, I like to sing in church. I was a teenager, you know, 18, 19 years old. I like to sing in the church choir over Crestview. You know, oh, okay. Can you play the piano? No. Uh, I can play the buck dance, you know. I can play like Madeline Woodall. They said, well, do you play the organ? No, I don't play the organ. Do you sing? Yes, I can, I can sing How Great Thou Art, Amazing Grace. How about that? Okay, well, you need to choose. Choose your major. I said, okay, well, what about voice? They had a major in voice. I said, okay, I'll do that. Well, a big mistake. There were some real 
voice teachers at Huntington College. The one that was assigned to me, or I was assigned to her, was Andrea Nelson. I found out on the first day of class. Now, you go there privately. It's not in a class. It's privately. She's at a piano or an organ, whatever. Andrea Nelson had just retired from the Metropolitan Opera as a soprano. She didn't have any patience with a country boy from Friendship, Alabama. I'm going to teach you how to sing opera. I said, how do you spell opera? Let's start with that. I don't even know how to spell it. She said, here's what I want you to do. She'd hit a chord, I'd do it. Anyway, my lesson started at Huntington College. Pretty soon I got interested in it. I really loved those Italian songs. French, but Italian mainly. And she introduced me to somebody, and this was back in the 60s. This person was just coming of age and really getting worldwide notarized. As it turned out, it was the one who said that his father told him, choose one chair and stick with it. He did stick with it for those 20-something years, laboring over his voice and his control and singing and, and everything. And finally, he made it to the Metropolitan Hospital in New York. And he sang there. I'll never forget the song that he sang. It's called Nesim Dorma. His name was Luciano Pavarotti. I got to know his music back then, and I've never forgotten it. And Brother Michael is going to pray, play this last clip. He died in 2007, I believe. Now remember, this is the man that said, God gave me my voice. I feel his pleasure when I sing. Brother Michael, would you play it?
Pavarotti once said, if I had been a bricklayer, a ditch digger, or a carpenter, I would have done it to the glory of God. That's us Father, we know that we all have a calling. Lord, I don't believe that any of us meant to just sit around and wait till glory comes. Until you take us home, there's so much that can be done in our churches and in our communities. And as we see our culture teaching, take, taking such a dramatic twist toward the evil, toward things that are not godlike, attacking the churches, attacking Christians. Lord, the time is coming when we may have to decide which chair you're going to sit in. What are you going to devote your life to? Take a stand. Be strong, even as Paul had to. And we pray, Father, as you have blessed this church through the years, you continue to bless. Bless the church, the staff, and the ministry. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Michael.